0: Earlier this year, my family and I were able to be in one of our favorite places on planet Earth, and that is in the Wild Coast, which is part of the Eastern Cape. And one of the reasons why we love the Wild Coast is because it is exactly that. Um, Yes, the kind of Hawaii, Seychelles, beach environment is beautiful, but the Wild Coast is rugged and wild, and there are so many places that I don't think have been changed since the last few thousand years. And so we love going there. One of the things we like doing when we are there is that there's this big series of rocks that we go and park off for the morning. There's a big rock pool, and the kids jump in there and swim around. And when the tide is right, we go out to the front and we pick mussels or whatever else we can find for lunch. And so in this particular day, we were doing exactly that. And I was with Levi, my oldest son, and we were looking around for these muscles. And yes, there's a bit of a splash coming on by some of the waves. But at one point, my back was towards the ocean. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this wall of water moving towards us so I was within a meter of Levi. I put my arms around him and I got our sense of gravity down. And this wave hits us so hard, it's moved us across the rocks and kind of crashed us against some other rocks about four or five meters away. We were both freaked out a little bit. We were both cut up. We both like lost some slops and some things along the way, but we survived to tell the tale. And, and for days afterwards, the thought freaked me out. What if I wasn't there just to be with my 30 kilogram son versus the X kilogram me? Um, (laughs) You see, those little waves earlier would sometimes come and wash over our feet, but they they couldn't move us. And every now and again, a a bigger wave would come and we would move away and it might wash up to our knees or mid-thigh and we would just make sure we're standing firm enough and we would be okay. But in this particular moment, a wave came that is so powerful, it moved us together like we were nothing. That's true power. Now, I don't know if you've ever met a person who is like that, that just makes things happen that just moves things, that things where, whether it's moving a business forward or just making things happen, they've got so much power in their personality or power in their charismatic nature or power in their business that things just happen that us mere mortals can't make happen. And then, of course, as you go up the kind of the apex of uh, human power, we get People like you and me, and then we get CEOs, and then we get those with political power. And depending on what you believe about things, maybe there's some unseen people behind the scenes with real power making things happen. And then we get presidential power. And at some points, I know it's a bit of a bygone era, we get kind of royal power, kingly and queenly power. Most recently, we've just seen the passing of Prince Philip, the queen's husband. And I have to admit to you, I've got no idea. What the royal family does and i don't know how they fit into the politics and the governments of england but what i do know is that they as a family exercise huge amounts of power there are times when we when we've tried to get stuff done maybe our electricity has been off for way too long or there was one particular time where we had no Wi-Fi, I know, first world problems, but for like a whole month, it doesn't matter who we phoned, we couldn't get anything done. We felt powerless in the moment. And yet there are people that just click their fingers. And someone like that family, man, they just move things. They're not just talking about, you know, getting electricity switched on for their home, but entire nations are affected by the decisions of these kinds of people. Now, I want you to hold onto that thought and especially how we think about particularly human power and I want to tell you why we're going down this rabbit hole. We started a number of weeks ago a series called Beautiful Collision. Beautiful Collision is the premise for how ultimately my life and God's life have to intersect. And it is a bit of a collision. There is a bit of wreckage as part of me needs to die, as part of my desires needs to die. But God makes it beautiful. He reforms me in His image in fullness. He gives Himself to me. And so it's beautiful. And we don't just kind of cross paths with God. We collide with God. And at the center point of each one of those collisions is the cross of Jesus Christ. So what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the cross from a number of different angles. You see, the cross is not a single simple thing. It's more like a multifaceted diamond that every time you look at it from another angle, you see more of its beauty, more of what's going on, and we're more inspired by what we see. And the same is true with the cross. Yes, it is a single thing that God did, but the biblical authors use different words to describe this thing. And so as we look at the cross from these different angles, we see it with more beauty and more power. And more particularly, this is not an intellectual exercise. Our prayer has been that we collide with God at the cross. Maybe for the very first time or maybe for the thousandth time, that we experience this beautiful collision as we look at the cross. And last week, we looked at the portraits of God as our judge and this tension between the fact that God is perfectly just and God is perfectly loving and where those two meet is at the cross and we spoke about how that is Jesus, our justification. But today, we're going to be looking at God, our judge. Sorry, God, our king. God, our king. And so how does the fact that God is king it together with Jesus on the cross? What angle does that give us so that we can have a beautiful collision with God? See, often the way we talk about the cross, we actually don't need the Bible, at least most of it. What I mean by that is often the way we speak about the cross, it almost happens in a vacuum. It could have happened in China or South Africa or yesterday without context, and yes, yet we've got this whole, this Bible of 66 manuscripts that have been put together that are recording a very intentional story and a very intentional history, not just the history of the nation and the, of Israel and the early church, but the history of how God is bringing His kingdom onto planet Earth. And so the backdrop of the cross and almost every other narrative in the Bible is the kingdom of God. The beginning of last year before lockdown, we spoke about the kingdom of God, if you remember that. And one of the things we recognized was that if you had to take the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and give them to somebody who's never heard about Jesus, and if you had to ask them, what are these three books about? they'd come back to you saying, yes, it's about Jesus. But if you had to say, what is the theme, the central theme of these books? They'd come back to you saying, the most common theme that's coming up in these books is the theme of the kingdom of God, otherwise known as the gospel of the kingdom of God. So how does the cross fit into all of that? Well, let's start at the beginning. Well, actually, let's start with Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 1, verses 14, after John is put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, a.k.a. the gospel, the good news, a.k.a. the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So he can say the kingdom of God is near with one breath, and he can call that the gospel or the good news with the other breath. When Matthew tells the story, he says Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12, and he says this, as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, we can devote entire lifetimes to getting through all the depths of what the kingdom of God is. And I want to invite you into that. But as we try and locate the cross and the story of the kingdom of God, I'm going to do my best to kind of just look at the high points. And so starting right at the beginning of Scriptures, we see the portrait of God given to us as the sovereign creator God. He is the king from page one. He is the one who always was. He is the one whose will is actualized. He is the one who makes things happen. He is the one who is worthy to be worshipped. He is the king. And out of his free will, he chooses to create humanity. And part of our role were to be the image bearers of this king. And all the reigning and ruling we were to do on planet Earth were to be in the stead of God, our king, as we worked with Him in this mysterious partnership. But there was a bit of a coup d'etat. As the enemy came and introduced sin into the world as our first parents were deceived by the enemy. Sin and death and chaos entered into the world. There was a bit of a power grab as the kingdom of darkness covered the face of the earth. God was still king in many ways, But now there was an enemy who was expanding his kingdom too. But God wasn't done. And so what God started doing is re-bringing his kingdom back into the world. But he started with a human family, the family of Abraham. That family ultimately became the family of Israel, the nation of Israel. And the goal, if you read that, all those narratives were that in the same way that Adam and Eve were to represent God well to this world as king. So Israel was to represent God well uh, to this world as God was king. And so they were to live under Him, they were to live with Him, they were to be animated and empowered by Him, they were to hear His Word, and the nations were supposed to see beauty and power, and they were supposed to say to themselves, ah, that is what it looks like when God is King. But we only saw that in glimpses, because humans being humans kept on messing it up. And all this time, it was God working in almost an indirect way through human kings and through human prophets and human intermediaries trying to set up this nation to be His light to the world. But then in the book of Isaiah chapter 52, we see a change of God's plan or rather a fulfillment of God's plan when Isaiah says in Isaiah 52 verses 7, how beautiful are the mountains, are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the gospel. Isaiah is telling us what the gospel is going to be who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. And so the gospel Isaiah is prophesying about is about the reigning of King God. Then we get to the next verse Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Can you see the connections Isaiah is building? The gospel is about the kingship of God and it is going to be when he returns personally to Zion as king. So now let's go back to the beginning of the sermon where I got you to think about the hierarchy of human power. And every time I'm in that mode, I often wonder what I could accomplish with more power. And almost always, my fantasies are selfish and are about me and my personal embitterments. And isn't that what we've seen, right? That as we go up the hierarchy of human power, Yes, occasionally we see a humble servant, but most of the time we see an abuse of power. But we get this image in our mind of what human power and strength looks like. And so in people's minds, as they started looking forward to this time that God would return personally as king to his nation, they imported all of their ideas of human power into that. At the time that Jesus arrived, they were under the the, the empire of the Romans. They couldn't stand that. So in their mind, they were expecting God to return and to get rid of all of the enemies, to flex His muscles, to come with an army, to come with human power, and in that way establish His rule from Zion, from Jerusalem. But what actually happened was, about that time, there was this unknown prophet from the wrong part of Israel starting to walk around the tiny little farm towns telling everybody that he was the king returned. Which is a bit strange, right? It's kind of like someone going around those farm towns in the south of America uh, telling everybody that he's now the president of the United States. With no polls, no big in financial investments, no votes. And so at first, people were naturally cynical about this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. But what Jesus started doing was He started demonstrating this truth. And so He started healing people. And as He healed people, He demonstrated that like God who created things, He could create all things new. And then He started speaking to demons and the demons obeyed Him showing that He, in fact, was the greater power. He started forgiving sins, which is something that only the God of the temple, Yahweh, could do. But instead of going to a temple and offering sacrifices, Jesus became like a walking temple to people and forgiving sins, very loudly showing that He was the King God returned in person. Very much not what people expected, but very much demonstrating the kingdom of God. And as we fast forward through the life of Jesus, we get to that point in time where this prophet is facing execution by the Romans. So, how do we make sense of that? Kings don't get onto crosses, kings don't die by the people we think he should have defeated. In our human mindset, that makes him not king. In the Gospel of John, we've got this conversation that happens with Jesus, between Jesus and Pilate. As Jesus is about to be crucified and he's on this sort of, he's on one of his trials. And Pilate says to Jesus, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Kind of yes or no. Jesus says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. It is of another world. And so then Pilate responds by saying, oh, so you are a king then. Listen to what Jesus says in John 18, verses 37. He says, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, a king who's about to climb onto a cross, for this reason, I was born. And for this reason, a king climbing onto a cross, I came into the world, but but just see how strange this idea is. He is claiming to be the Jewish king. The word we have for that is the Hebrew word Messiah. The Greek word is Christos. So every time we call Jesus Christ, we are declaring his kingship. He therefore is not only claiming to be a human king, but God returned as king. And yet he is standing about to be given a verdict by a human being that he created. With his hands bound, being mocked and ridiculed by his people, about to be scourged within an inch of his life, and then crucified. These gospel narratives, especially as we look at them through the lens of Jesus as King, are so filled with irony. You see, when they crucified Jesus, they placed a sign above Him that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in three different languages. So that everybody could read and understand that. At one point, people came up to Him and started mocking Him, saying, If you really are the Son of God, just show your power. Climb down off this cross. Flex your muscles. And as we seek to understand this reason that the king came to climb onto a cross, we are going to start to see that Jesus demonstrated his kingship not by getting off the cross, but by staying on the cross. New Testament theologian N.T. Wright put it this way. He says, what for Pilate and the soldiers was Jesus, in inverted commas, crime? His claim to be Israel's true king was for Matthew the sober truth. And the crucifixion was the means by which his kingdom would be established. There's another part of the story that helps illustrate this point. At one point, one of the insurrectionists who was crucified next to Jesus turns to him, he's got this light bulb moment where he realizes that even though this man is on a cross next to me, he is the true king. And so he says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds by saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me when? When you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Somehow when the king was hanging on a cross was when God's kingdom was advancing most against the kingdom of the enemy. You see, in order for Jesus' kingdom to come, he would have to defeat and displace other kingdoms. Now, I don't want to re-preach Craig's sermon from Resurrection Sunday. Do yourself a favor and go and look at Jesus, our victor. One of the most powerful angles that we can view the cross through. Jesus, our victor, who on the cross defeated not the Romans, not flesh and blood, but our true enemies, sin and Satan and the curse of the law and death. And so that is who Jesus defeated on the cross. And it is at that moment that he dealt these enemies their death blow. And so I'm hoping that you see the King and the cross are not at odds with each other. In fact, they are inextricably connected to one another. Now, what is sometimes quite difficult, maybe it's just me, is to reconcile this event that happened 2,000 years ago to my Monday. And to, yes, worship God for the thing that in my imagination happened but it it just seems distant and far and so I want to try and apply this idea of the king on the cross to our Mondays and our Tuesdays and so we have this beautiful collision with God and so the first application is this is that because of the cross Jesus is still the victorious king who is still bringing his kingdom Because of the victory at the cross, we as Christians, as Craig Rochelle says, don't go for victory, we go from victory. And so when you and I come across the opponents that Jesus defeated on the cross, we don't have to wonder who wins. When we come across Jesus' enemies, when we come across demonic forces, even if we come across the very person of Satan himself, we need not fear at all because the cross shows we come from victory. And when the enemy comes and throws our sin in our face, we don't have to wonder if sin wins because we know that the king wins, the king won. So we go from victory. And that is how we get to live this life. Jesus is now the victorious king. He has demonstrated his victory over all powers. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And he is right now today reigning and ruling. And he is still ruling through us as he exercises his kingship through us. There's a great story in Acts chapter 3 where we see exactly this happening. Peter and John heal a beggar in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And there's a whole hullabaloo that happens around this. Bit of a debate and a bit of a public, bit of chaos. And so they respond to these people saying, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? In verse 16, they say, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him that has given this complete healing to Him. You see here, Peter and John are on this side of the cross. Jesus is enthroned as the victorious king and now he is still doing what kings do, which is bringing their kingdom as they continue to push back the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of our enemy. This is why one of the terms that the Bible uses for you and me as Christians is that we are Christ's ambassadors. The word Christian has become so diluted and misunderstood in culture around us. That sometimes I'm afraid to use that word, not because I'm proud of, not proud of Christ, because I'm scared of what you think I'm saying when I say I'm a Christian. But one of the terms for us as Christ followers is that we are God's ambassadors as the ambassadors of this victorious King. Do you know that if you had to walk into the U.S. Embassy in South Africa Even though that embassy is on South African soil, the minute you walk onto their property, you are standing on U.S. soil. And in the same way, as we walk, we are Christ's ambassadors. And in many ways, we are like mini embassies of the King. This doesn't only have moral implications, meaning I must just make sure that I'm a good little boy or girl at work and school. This has huge implications if the king is still bringing his kingdom today and if he is the victorious king and if we are truly his ambassadors and if we are truly like Peter and John have access in a mysterious way to be part of what God is doing in this world, that has huge implications for your Monday for how you see yourself as a Christian. So that's the first implication. The second one is this. There's a cruciform shape to the kingship of God. See, I think sometimes we are like those people who misunderstood who Jesus was because our view of might and power was shaped more by human power than by what God was truly wanting to do through Jesus. I think sometimes we are like those people who are looking at Jesus and in a human perspective seems to be at a point of weakness and we're saying, get down off the cross. Don't show yourself to be weak in that way. How did the king defeat his enemy? He did it by dying. This is the cruciform shape to the kingship of God. Guys, we are not going to shape our nation and our schools and our families through a human show of strength in the name of Jesus. We are going to do it by doing it the way Jesus does it, which is by serving and by dying to ourselves in order that His power might be made perfect through our weaknesses. Jesus, the King, said this as His disciples were debating this. He says, guys, the way you see power is the way the Gentiles see power. The way you are describing power is the way the world sees power and you've got it wrong. Now, He's the King. He knows He's the King. He's described Himself as King and then He says this, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so this invitation to sometimes appear weak as we die to ourselves in the name of Jesus can so confuse us because we say to ourselves, but but isn't God the king, the victorious king? So somehow we need to hold application one in our right hand, and application two in our left hand. Application one being Christ is still the king bringing his kingdom today. And in our left hand, we hold the truth that there's a cruciform shape to the kingship of God. So I wanna suggest to you at least one way we can hold those tensions together. Paul says, for our real enemy is not flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers. So when we speak to principalities and powers, when we speak to sin, We speak with the power of the victorious King who has demonstrated His victory over them once and for all. But when we speak to God's created people, we do what Jesus the King did for them. We serve them. We love them. We die to ourselves. And even as we speak the truth of who God is, This is not something we win through brute strength and a show of force. This cruciform shape to the kingship of God. Guys, we have come out of this time where I don't know how you see in your mind, I'm gonna put in inverted commas, the church, As I look back over my last 12 months, I have seen more and more public leaders fall into moral failings. We have seen online the church acting like children. We have seen a very polarized and confused church, be it on foreign shores or our shores. We have possibly begun to believe that because we couldn't gather like this, that we are in a point of weakness and in a human sense that may be true. But let me tell you, if we look through the pages of history, the church has been strongest when there has been significant opposition. Now, I'm not praying for opposition. The Bible, in fact, tells us we should pray for peace for our nations and our leaders. But there is something where we are called to put down deeper roots and show greater conviction, greater faith, a greater dependency on God because now we cannot put our faith in people. Guys, this COVID post-COVID season that we're in is the perfect opportunity for us to do just that. Please don't believe the lie that the church of the victorious king is weak. Please don't make your evaluations about that statement based on human understandings of what the church is. That king is present with us today. That king is speaking and alive today. That King is inviting us today to be part of His kingdom's expansion. We've just had one application of that this morning. As the King wanted to set some of us free from overwhelming grief. That's what the King does. Please don't leave from here and evaluate be it Riverside Community Church or any church that you mean worshipping with online through human lenses, but rather through the lens of the victorious King. And so I want to invite you to make a decision based on that conviction to change how you see what God is doing in the world around us. Is there darkness? Man, there's plenty of it. The most amazing thing about the cross is that when God looked his weakest, he was doing his greatest work. That is why the gospel writers call the cross foolishness. But we know different. And I want to invite you to place your faith on those truths. So, as I pray, I want to invite you to stand, but but your standing is going to be yes. The King has demonstrated His victory and He is still alive. And I choose to trust His power and His work and His kingdom. Father, You are our tremendous King. We've sung songs of battle. We've sung songs of praise. We've sung songs of victory. Not to kind of make our souls believe something we hope to be true, but to focus our faith on the resurrected victorious King. And so Father God, as we look at an admittedly dark and confused world, and possibly we even look at an admittedly dark and confused church, Father, we are choosing to take our eyes off of that and fix our eyes on the King who has not abandoned His posts, who is alive and who is inviting us to courageously partner with You, Jesus Christ, as You are at work pushing back the powers of evil in this world. So Holy Spirit, give us a Christ-centered faith a faith focused on who Jesus is as our King. Father, I think about us as your ambassadors. God, I pray that that would hit us like a brick between the eyes. We're not just Christians who go to church sometimes. We walk through this planet as your ambassadors. And that has such implications that I don't have time to unpack right now, God. But God, would that blow our minds? that reframe how we see our purpose on this earth how we do family how we make decisions about our time yes when we are faced with sin and temptation and the enemy that we choose the victorious king at every single one of those moments and god i pray that we would like peter and john Recognize the availability of the power of the kingdom to us. We are not doing this in our own strength. At the same time, Lord, as we trust your strength, we embrace the cross you call us to carry. And that so often means laying down my personal view of human strength. be it my trust in my own strength or the strength of others around me. Human systems, which your word tells us, are so often led by powers that are against your kingdom, God. Father, as we demonstrate real love and service, we die to ourselves. We become less so that you become more. We die to our souls so that the, uh, the Spirit of Christ can live through us. God, we don't want to be a lukewarm church. We don't want to be people who just simply tick the box of Christian God. We want to be your ambassadors. And so, yes, Lord, we want to live according to your power and we want to carry your cross. Holy Spirit we are standing this morning seeking your direction as we go home as we go and wage war in this world but not the way the world does the way Jesus showed us on the cross we pray this in Jesus name would you sustain us in this as your people Amen Amen